You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. We would like to remind you to head over to the Sportsman's Nation Facebook and Instagram pages to check out the new trailer for the very first ever short film titled Tradition. We're really excited about this project and hope you will enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. to the Huntivore Podcast, episode 25, Chewing the Fat with John Smith. Nick and Dustin are joined by their good friend, John Smith. John is an avid woodsman whose skill set goes way beyond any normal guy's understanding. The guys break down the last bit of turkey action, morels, and false morels, and the ins and outs of trapping here in Michigan. A very insightful episode. Hope you enjoy Oh, and while I got you here, make sure you head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts, and please leave us a review and a rating. That's going to help people figure out who we are and what we're all about. Anyway, on with the show. We've had so many close calls with her this spring, it's not even funny. I probably had close to a dozen times we've had birds inside of 60 yards. Can't get them further. They just lock up right there? Well, they won't even come to calls, so we just started not, no calls, no decoys, just go out and pretend we're doing that. Yeah. And it just, well, Shane Shepard, you know Shane, right? Mm-hmm. Him and I came out, or he came out, I hunted with him all day on a Saturday, Mother's Day weekend. Is that the one that's really good? Dude, he can talk a turkey like you and I can speak English. It's unbelievable. But we were on this bird. His dad came out with us at first. We set up where I got my bird, where I've been seeing him every day. Mm-hmm. We saw it eight times. Nothing would come in. Shane's just shaking his head. I don't get it. He says, you know, we have four times here. No hens. Three times here, one hen. A time over there by itself, something should be coming. Yeah. They aren't. No. Nope. Well, he's just picking up on something? I. He's got his own theories on it. I didn't realize it, but hens, natural world, hens go to times. Times don't go to hens. Right. That's why they create the start line and lock right up. So his dad had to leave at like 1130. So him and I, we did the run and gun technique. We'd get out there, we'd set up. He'd get them gobbling. And they keep, we probably heard 300 gobbles that day. He'd hear a gobble, we'd be about 70, 80 yards away through the woods. That's figured that's where we're at. He'd set up, we'd each drop a decoy in, we'd pile in the brush, and he'd start calling it gobble two, three times every time it's further away. So his thought was, well, maybe he's hen, you know, he's got a hen that's taking him away. This hen doesn't want to challenge us, because you can get into a hen battle, too, which is what he was shooting for, and mm-hmm. the hen must have been, she just didn't want nothing to do with it. Well, we we chased that sucker all the way to M43, up by that big mansion house, mm-hmm. down the creek bed, out on the edge of Bob's property, right by M43, where the swamp comes up, you got a field lane. And we were kind of funneling it right into there. And there was a tree that had fallen down out of the muck. We were knee deep in muck when this happened. Well, he's left-handed. He's got his gun in his... His gun was in his right-hand decoy in the left hand. And that sucker popped up here to that tree far away. <laughs> so he's like, shit, dropping his decoy. <laughs> by the time he got up... You know, I can't shoot left-handed. But by the time yeah. he gets up left-handed, that bird was 45 yards on a dead run. Yeah, just sprinting yeah. out of yeah. there. <clears throat> we should have had that sucker so many times. <laughs> Well, hey, folks, glad you could join us. I know we've kind of started already in um, on our uh, on our chat here. I want to introduce a um, friend here, of uh, Dustin and I. Um, he's kind of been a 
the go-to local mountain man if uh, if you want to know something about the woods. You go to this gentleman here, John Smith. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. This is a pleasure to have you here in, in the camper. I appreciate you guys having me on. This is going to be neat. we got a whole list of topics that we're going to talk about today. And just kind of where we were jumping in on, we were talking turkeys. Um, you were lucky enough, you got one, and nope. your daughter got one as well. She almost, she said close calls, but she hasn't got one yet. Close calls, okay. Yes. Enough to get her heart racing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you were alluding to, one here, where you were, you were actually out with a different friend. Yeah. Um, chasing that bird. Um, but having a chance to go out there and hunt with your daughter, talk about that experience when you're, when you're hunting with your kid. What's that like? There's nothing else like it. It's your whole mindset goes from wanting to get one to wanting to put them on a bird. And that's your only goal. You're just driven to get them on a bird, have them experience that first experience to watch the smile on their face. And it's a memory that embeds in their mind that they'll never forget. Well, good deal. Yeah, I know as a as a father, you have that that gear change. Both of our kids are, are too young. Um, we've done the fishing thing, and that's you're more or less untangling lines, <laughs> yeah. ending up with a hook in your leg instead of their leg. Yeah, my my son is getting really good at trying to get to the hook. So yesterday, he took the pole because he takes my pole, and he's trying to figure out how to get to the hook so he can impale himself with it. And he's looking at me, we're on the dock, he's looking at the pole, and he's looking at the lure that he put on the dock. He chucks the pole into the water, and goes airborne, and leaps toward the the lure. And uh, I had to decide which way to go, so I <laughs> saved his freaking hand instead of the pole, but <laughs> that's the stage that we're at. Father decisions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Drives me nuts, man. Drives me nuts. We'll get to a point. We're getting there. Oh, They're only what? Two? Ellis is only two? Yeah, he's two. He's, he's a terrible two. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to that, like where my daughters are. I look back and I miss those days. Yeah. Now they don't want help. They want to do it themselves, and which is cool. Yeah. yeah. I get to fish now, too. But <laughs> you kind of look back and miss those days that go by way too quick. We'll see. <laughs> now, how many kids you got, John? Two. You up got, to two? I got a daughter that's eight and a half and another daughter that's going on 11 in June. Gotcha. And both of them seem to really love the outdoors. Yeah, they're tomboys, girly girls, all at the same time. Perfect mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, good deal. And your wife likes to get out and yeah, she's, uh, hunt as well. Her phrase was, you created an animal. And for years, I couldn't even get her gun hunting. She just wanted a bull hunt. She was all into it. And actually, Dustin was there when we gutted her first year. Yeah. And she's been hooked since. Well, good deal. Um, yeah, let's... Well, no, we were on. We were on talking turkeys. Um, let's stick with kind of the same area now. Mushrooms, yeah. um, specifically morels. Um, I found my first solo morel. We're right now. It's Memorial Day. Actually, Memorial Day proper. It's that Monday. Yeah. Anyway, I found it two weeks ago. Um, just one lone. <laughs> what it comes out to be is a half free. Yes. Those are edible, correct? Yes, the half-freeze are. Gotcha. There's, there's a variety that looks similar to them that you've got to watch for. It's got the cotton on the inside, and the stem is attached to the very top at the tip versus halfway down the stem, giving you a half-free. Good. Well, I, I know I had contacted you, yeah. or at least um, through a message board, I, I had talked to you, and then I had already keyed it out via 
a couple sources online, and I've got a key out book that helped me figure out what it was. Yeah. I should have never done it, but I went to the Mushroom Forum on Facebook. Yep, I've done the same thing. It's like walking in on a digital bar fight. <laughs> it is. Everybody is telling everybody else I'm... they're wrong, they're stupid, and they should <laughs> not be doing this. That is not the place to go. <laughs> well, I posted my pictures that I've, of the morels I found. And the first batch, I got a huge batch of half-freeze mixed with some grays, gray morels. Yeah. And the outstanding number of people said, don't eat those, those are false morels. And honestly, that's how I grew up. I was grown, raised, that's false morel, don't touch it. But the last several years, I've learned more and more about different mushrooms. And there's a lot of edible mushrooms out there that are great. You just need to know what to and what not to eat. There's a phrase, <laughs> there's bold mushroom hunters and there's old mushrooms hunters. But there's no, <laughs> no old bold ones. No, no old bold. <laughs> so know what you're eating. <laughs> I like that phrase. <laughs> I find that there's a lot of phrases with mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, the old and bold, I'm now just hearing that one for the first time. The The latest one that I really enjoy is if it's hollow, it's okay to swallow. <laughs> and that only works for mushrooms. You can't try that <laughs> with your girlfriend or wife because they, they don't buy that. <laughs> so you ended up with a whole bunch of those as well this year. I think I ended up with close to 400 between the morels and half-freeze total. Which is the best year I've had since I was a child. I just think, it, you know, we had a lot of rain. Yeah. The temperature fluctuation really contributed to a, a longer duration of season. Mm-hmm. Where versus, you know, some years it just spikes and we have a good season for a week and we're done. This year we had enough to where it was up and down and you didn't go out and get a big, some people did, but you didn't go out and catch, find a thousand of them in one day. Right. But you could steadily pick for three, four weeks straight. Now are you hitting spots that have traditional these have been spots you've either put a waypoint on or you just know i had to you know this hollow or this south facing slope or are these are you finding new spots everything this year was new locations for me really Um, my old locations i traditionally went to Mm -hmm. the last three four years i've struck out and so i told the wife this year i said i'm gonna go out i'm gonna find new spots and big things i want to get my kids out there yeah kids love finding them they love picking them they don't like walking through briars and not finding anything. It's true. <laughs> so I told her, I said, I want to get the kids out. And I, there was a couple of times I went out and I found them. And I came back with the kids to pick them at a later date. And that way they got to experience and enjoy what we're, what I like to do. Yeah. Get them involved. Yeah. More impact with the mushroom, less impact with the briars. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now if we get um, transitioning to the whitetails... Um, Actually, my first whitetail weapon that I used was a, I think this bow, it came from another friend of ours that I wasn't sure if I wanted to buy the bow from him, and then he told me that I bought this off of John Smith. So here's another connection we have, (laughs) is that I started out with your bow in high school. That bow put down probably more deer than any other bow I've ever owned. It was a machine. It was a machine. I vouched for that. <laughs> um, but getting into whitetails, is that where you got your start into hunting? Like, talk, talk to me about your backstory of getting into the outdoors. My backstory getting into the, the woods end of it, it's all through my dad. My family, I grew up in an outdoors family that we hunted, we fished, we gardened. You know, we lived off the land. And when I was probably 10, 11 years old, my dad got me started small game hunting. Turkey hunt, or not turkey, excuse me. But rabbit and squirrel hunting. Mm-hmm. And that got one thing led to another. And we got into deer hunting when I turned 12 years old. And the addiction just took off from there. 
Now, were, at that point, were you using a bow, or was you were you on a shotgun? At that I point? was on a bow when I was twelve, and when I turned fourteen, I was on a muzzleloader. I actually never used a shotgun until I was probably seventeen or eighteen. I was always raised one shot, one kill, and make that shot count. I love it. I love it. Um, talk to me about some of those early hunts. Like what? What was your average? Like, was it morning? Was it afternoon? I found what was your most memorable. I love morning hunts. If you could hunt. I used to log all my hours, and an average season I was around 300 hours a season in the woods for deer. 85% of those hunts were evening hunts. Of that 15% that were mornings, attributed to close to 90% of my successful hunts. Really? Mornings were the key for me. And now, the spots you had, um, you you and your dad, I mean, you had a, your, your, your dad ran a... Basically, an arbor shop. You guys grew yes. trees for a living, and so land manipulation was nothing that you guys were afraid of. You were going to get out there and yep. either make food plots or, or hinge cut. So you guys were big into property management yeah. before I've, property management took off. Yeah, we. I've seen it both ways. You know, before when I was real young, we didn't do much of it, and I started tinkering with it and finding that you can manipulate where deer go, how they go, when they go. And you can be part of that deer movement more so than luck. Because I look at it, you know, there's several guys in the state that consistently take mature whitetails every year. You don't get lucky like that every year. But if you put in the effort, you can be consistent. Yeah. Now, are you finding it more on the, because um, I think they're even finding about now, like, you know, you can throw a food plot out there, but that doesn't mean you're going to sit no. over it and get something every time. Habitat manipulation was number one key. Forest density, you got to get that forest thickened up. Hinge falling trees, uh, that played a huge role in it. And then, you know, a lot of times we'd take a line and we'd hinge fall a bunch of trees. We'd punch a few holes in it where we wanted the deer to go through. Now you've got your manipulation where the deer move. And then you create bedding areas adjacent to that, adjacent to food plots. And then you also create buck, buck bed areas downwind of where the does are going to bed so you can hold those bucks on your property further into the daylight hours, hopefully closer to night before they wander off your property. Mm-hmm. And you guys are doing this. I mean, you got some pretty good acreage, but you're by no means hundreds and hundreds of acres. No, at this point. we're at we're at ninety acres there. Ninety acres at the the Thornapple yes. spot. And then even my place, I've got two point seven acres. In the first five years, I killed four two and a half year old bucks off of two point seven acres with no woods. That was all food plot and screening, using the sorghum stand grass, creating screens with a food plot inside, almost checkerboard, so a, a buck looking for does. He'd spend 15 minutes inside there trying to find out where that grunt came from before he'd leave. And he always offered me a shot. Good deal. Good deal. Prior to the screens, you know, you could grunt your butt off and they'd look from across the field. Nobody's there. I'm going to keep moving on. Yeah. Now with the screening, you're breaking up that visual Yes. Give them something they can't see past. You're grunting. They can't tell if there's a doe back there being chased by a little spike. It makes them curious enough to have to cross that border into your vulnerable area. I like it. I did run. In fact, I got to throw out some more sorghum this year. I haven't done that. I'm late to the game. But I did one year of that screening, like you were said. Yeah. And I took my one little acre food plot that I did brassicas, and I just circled it. And that, I got more dancing in inside mm-hmm. of that sorghum than I ever thought I would. Yeah, get. and you'll get more daytime feeding. They feel secure, safe. You can also use that for screening in your access trails. So you're walking on one side of it, and they're bedding on the other. 
gives you a better access into your stand. There you go. I mean, probably at some point they're going to hear you, but yeah. they can't see. Yeah, exactly. Now, is that how, what's the, I don't know, it's all theory, but it's like nose is number one, eyes is number two, and hearing's number three as yeah. far as like what's going to alarm them? Yeah, I would say so. The only thing I can say about if you've got small acreage, such as my place, mm-hmm. the first year I did a lot of heavy food plotting, I took my dog, and we walked the perimeter of that every day. And it was for the excitement of seeing my stuff grow. Right. But little did I know, looking back at the previous year, every time those deer crossed my scent path, their eyes were looking. That next year, when I walked around it every day with my dog, those deer smelled me, the dog walker. They didn't smell John the hunter. And I'm... I still to this day believe it plays a huge role. Either be out there consistently or don't be out there at all. With being here on the the farm side of it, um, we're running gators and equipment and stuff all over the place. I tell you, I mean, deer, deer, they jump in ten yards, ten yards into the yeah. woods, let the gator pass, and then they go back to what they were doing. Exactly. And it's like I kind of I fall in that with you as as well. I just do that. I don't change what that pattern is. I just keep doing yep. the same thing with the gator, and I'm. Getting, not that I'm shooting off the gator. <laughs> Let's be very clear. <laughs> we park it, and yeah. then we go to the stands. Something else you could do is have somebody drop you off with the gator and continue making the loop. There you go. Deer can't count. They think that person's gone, and there you are. That's a pro tip today from yeah, John Smith. Deer can't count. <laughs> so have have a buddy or a wife drop you off at your spot. Well, good. I mean, it's getting exciting. I mean, it's summertime. We're We're starting to get into... A lot more intense archery practice. I know um, I've been working pretty hard at that. We've got our total archery challenge coming up here. Um, first first week, or no, excuse me, second weekend in June. Uh, it's up in Boyne, Michigan. They put foam targets all over uh, Boyne Mountain, and basically you hike around and do a 3D shoot. Um, some courses are shorter. Uh they call it the locals course, and it's where you know you're taking any shots from 20 to 60 yards. Then you have your mountain course, which is now they're at elevation, so now you're shooting up uphill, downhill, and it becomes more technical. And then they have their really long courses, which then you're looking at 80 yards, 90 yards. And our first year going to it, we I mean we were just throwing arrows, <laughs> you know, just to break, just to maybe I can get there, but we've now couple of us have got adjustable sights i i bought six arrows that were super lightweight just so that i could start reaching out past 100 yards to hopefully try and hit stuff that's out there um but yeah that's that's kind of where we're hitting here have you gotten your your crossbow out yet dustin and got that thing zeroed up i'm pretty sure it's zero but no i haven't gotten (laughs) it out i've been too busy getting my butt kicked by turkeys and Everything else that I've tried to do in the month of May, actually. Are you still on a rough streak? Are you still pursuing gobblers right now? No, I get or my season ended. I guess at must have been the beginning of May. So I guess that's well, okay. You weren't the third season; you were the second season. Was the short? Yeah, the short second season that nobody wants to do. Which I know why now. <laughs> it's a terrible season. It's not me. It's the season's fault. <laughs> yeah. So as far as shooting, are you shooting year-round then? Are you and the girls out there with the bows? We don't shoot as much in the summer now as we used to, but we still do. I think a lot of it has to do with the extracurricular activities of the kids. Are they we, get, they're jumping to sports now? Sports and dance and 
it's five six days a week keeping busy with that oh man but we still typically on a friday night at least two or three times a month we'll build a campfire roast hot dogs get the bows and targets out and between now and probably first of september do that and september really start to dial things in there you go yeah i've noticed just with picking up my own shot like getting getting form i'm getting more comfortable and i'm it's i've got a sequence now and it's less focusing on the sequence now and it's about just getting settled it's all muscle memory muscle muscle memory at this point i'm not trying to do any shortcuts you know right now slow is smooth and then later smooth is fast exactly so we're we're working on that i'm getting my four-year-old out there he's got his little i think it's a little bear yep. l-i-l apostrophe <laughs> little bear and he's been flying arrows and i've i've taken the approach of i'm not i'm gonna let him shoot his his four arrows i'm gonna let him be happy with whatever he's doing i'm not gonna try and correct too much because i don't want to overwhelm him yep exactly. um, and just knowing how how he he is He's really book smart. He's attention to detail. I don't want to start throwing tons of details at him because then he's going to worry about them. He'll get frustrated. Yeah. So right now it's pretty much three fingers. Make sure the white fletching's facing you. Um, I haven't even put feathers on that, so it it's got veins, so it kicks off the bow. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you see the sideways arrow go and hit the target, and woo, we celebrate. <laughs> he has a good time with it. That's that's what it's all about, though, is to get them involved in it and excited keep the positive mojo going now your 11 year old has she gone out with you for a deer at all she actually got her first doe last year during firearm season gotcha um, was she rocking a muzzleloader like no i actually had like a, a single shot 44 mag and it was pushing close to a three and a half mile track job oh my goodness and it put us through the ringers and back we didn't give up we came back all torn up and she earned that deer i'll give her that <laughs> well good deal <laughs> After a mile, you know, you start, you know, blood starts drying up and, you know, heart starts to sink down yeah. and nobody's happy about that. Triple that. Holy yeah, had, smokes. The Fitbit, I was I was wearing a Fitbit watch. So I had my steps and everything all logged in and it was pushing 3.6 miles and it was a 700 yard drag at the end. Oh my goodness. I was beat. Now, did you call a, call one of the dog teams or you, you were just No, we did it on our own. Okay. We waited. I didn't get to see the shot. I was actually eyeballing a different deer with my cell phone camera, and she shot a different direction than I was looking. <laughs> and uh, so it was. It took me by a little bit of surprise, but she'd been doing really well on the target out 70, 80 yards, and this was a 45, 50-yard shot. And she hit it low, and that deer physically bled out. Um, we didn't give up. There was actually no vitals even hit. But that deer... Really, just artery must have been yep. cut and just kept bleeding. And we just stayed on the trail. We gave it two hours before we started tracking. Found some blood, which we thought was lung blood. It was aerated, light pink. Mm -hmm. And we got on the trail, and it left a trail of blood that you'd expect to see a deer run 60 yards and drop. So it kept us going and going and going and going and going and going. <laughs> and we found her, so it was it was really exciting. The look on her face when that deer was right next to us, and it was like, holy cow, Dad, we actually got this deer. She forgot all about the prickers, like you were saying. Yeah, when there's something at the end, you know, they don't, that the weight of being scratched up, being tired, you don't remember that. Yeah, exactly. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, her and my younger, my younger one especially, she likes to go out and sit in the tree stand with me. Well, hey, while we got you here, thanks again for listening. Dustin, where can our listeners engage more with us? They can check us out on Instagram at Hunnivore. They can check us out on Facebook, The Hunnivore. 
or send us an email at huntivore at gmail.com. We've also joined the Sportsman's Nation family of passionate outdoorsmen. Um, they come together with lots of great content. You can check out their website at sportsmansnation.com. They're also on Instagram and Facebook with the handle Sportsman's Nation. Um, in fact, if you check out their blog, we have a recipes already up. And they are a 2% for conservation company, which means as a business, they give 1% of their time and 1% of their earnings back to the wildlife and wild places that we love. I think that's pretty sweet. Anyway, back to the show. And she doesn't hunt yet, but she wants to be there watching for deer. And she's got her little eagle eyes. You know, I'm getting my old eyes where I can't quite see as well. <laughs> she picks up the tab there for me. Well, good deal. Yeah, you got your spotter. <laughs> she does well. Um, so a topic that we've um, we haven't touched on. Granted, this isn't. It's nowhere around that season. Is trapping, and you have found yourself to become quite the trapper. Um, are you are you trapping for meat? Are you trapping for for pelts and fur? Both talk to us about what trapping looks like. Uh, when I was a child growing up, we trapped a lot for fur. We sold the furs to the local fur buyers. Money was good. The quantities were up. Uh, with the economy the way it is right now, I've kind of steered down a little ways away from doing too much trapping for fur, just because the the Russian economy it, it's not making fur pelts valuable for us. Uh, and the flip side, nuisance control. That's been my, my go-to the last couple of years between coyote snaring and this year I had an opportunity presented to me to try getting some beavers out of an area. And that turned out to be awesome. <laughs> I had never really considered trapping beavers. and It was something that we really didn't have a population around growing up. And my neighbor approached me and they were actually cutting trenches a foot and a half wide, three feet deep through his driveways. Wow. And he'd fill them in with dirt and two days later they're torn back apart going from pond to pond. And... This year was fruitful. I mean, we had, we had, one was probably 18, 20 pounds, and we had another one that was probably 25. We had a 42 and a 50 pounder. Jeez, old Pete. And it was a, a 50 pound 50 pounder beaver. That thing knocked a 330 bear out of the out of the run. It was a bank den. He knocked that out of the run three or four times. Keep in mind, my neighbor had previously been trying to trap these animals, so they were becoming wise. Still. Yeah, <laughs> they and, knew what to look for. Yes, they did. I was. Catching on to that real quick. And I hung that same spot with a snare. Lo and behold, the next day, that 50-pounder fell to a snare. <laughs> wow. Now, that the, that snare is not meant to take them out at that point. It's just meant there to hold them. Or did that one That eventually... one was still alive. It took him around the center. Right gotcha. Between, right behind the front legs. At that point, then you put you dispatch the animal after that. Yeah. But the snare is not meant to choke him out. It's just pretty much meant there to... Hold the critter. Yeah, I'd, until you come ideally back it'd be to choke them out, but Michigan legal snares, they're... They're not going to do that. Yeah, they got a minimum closure diameter, which I was using my coyote snares, so they had the blocks on them and everything that you're supposed to have. I believe underwater, that's eliminated. I think you can use a choke snare underwater. Gotcha. But I used what I had. <laughs> it was actually kind of a sad story, too, for me. It was exciting for my dad because I had to leave the state to go for work training down in North Carolina. And the first day that I flew in down there was the first day my dad checked my trap line. And he got my 50-pounder for me. Oh, man. <laughs> he did take some videos of it. And uh, I couldn't wait to get back. 
Yeah. I got good news and bad news. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> good news is, is you got a fever. Yeah. Bad, bad news is, you're not here to get it. Bad news is the biggest his tailgate. Not mine. <laughs> so you mentioned a, a conibear too. Can you explain what a, what a conibear is and the different sizes? Because you mentioned it sounded like a big one. I don't know what a 330 is, but it sounds like, real big. <laughs> there. Uh, conibear is a body gripping trap. Uh, as far as the structural, it's kind of hard to explain. But they start out smaller, like for muskrats and smaller animals like that. You're looking at a 110 conibear. The next size up, you're looking at a 160, a 220, the 330. Actually, I think there's a 280, which is kind of a rectangular size. I just found that out recently because I thought I had a 330, mm -hmm. and it was not a 330. It was somewhere in between a 220 and a 330. And then they make the 330, which is ideal for beavers and even, I guess, if you could trap coyotes and get them to go in there. It would take a coyote out. Um, they do make some wider ones that are pushing 16, 18 inches wide by, I think the 330s are 12 or 14 inches square. But it's a big body gripping trap. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, you're not looking for a paw or a leg at this point. It's going to grab midsection. Yeah, you're looking for a swim through and catch them like a suitcase, so to speak, right across the midsection. Okay, gotcha. Now, those things got enough. I mean, A, they're a body gripping for these critters. When you're putting one of these together, are you just you got a the, set sequence that the three thirties you actually have to use a tool. You got to use a tool there. Yeah, to you, set both it. springs, the two outer springs, you got to compress. Put a, a safety latch dog over those springs. Slide those springs to the pivotal point of the main body of trap, and then sque squeeze those together. Set the trigger, and then release your two safety latches. Then it's live. Gotcha. But it's there's a tool. It's probably pushing two and a half, three feet long. Looks like a scissors. To actually grip and squeeze those springs together. Now, 220 you can set by hand. Yeah. That 330, it's... You ain't gonna do that by hand. No, it's pins and needles every time I set one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I catch my thumb, like, once a year <laughs> on a, a, you know, mouse, mouse trap. trap. Yeah. And that's enough to make me say about three, four-letter words. <laughs> I couldn't imagine one of these body grippers. I, I haven't done much trapping, but I'm, I'm a snare guy. Yeah. Simply by the fact that I like my fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, snares are great. I mean... They seem effective too. So, I had no—I didn't have much experience growing up with them. And my later early twenties, a uh, buddy of mine got into coyote snaring and convinced yeah. me that you'll be more successful snaring for coyotes than you will calling them. And he—he he was correct. I always thought, with my complete terrible, misguided lack of trapping knowledge, that they were illegal. And then when I started reading the rags and that you can use them, yeah, like There's you, you got to just do it right. But yeah, you can't just buy a. An online snare out of Minnesota and throw it in the woods of Michigan. There. There's some modifications that need to be made. Now, for a setup on one of these coyotes, I mean, they don't call them Wiley for nothing. They, they've seen these traps. They've seen yes. these setups. I've had countless times where they burned through the snow up to five on a walking path. You can see their footprints walking five feet from my snare, turn 90 degrees and run. Just, they just bolt they, out of there. They know it. Um, my biggest thing for snaring coyotes, my first year I went out and I set snares everywhere I thought a coyote was going to be at. Over the next couple of years, I actually took my dad out with me on the set line. My dad, was he's a very experienced trapper, and he says, get on your hands and knees and look at it like a coyote would look at it. Not as a almost six-foot human being. Well, that right there, I'd learn a lot. Get down where the coyotes are looking. All right, where's this hole going into the woods at? I'm going to put a snare there. So I'd start out with a half a dozen or so snares on this 230-acre parcel I had to trap. But instead of putting all my snares out the first day and hoping they'll go there, every time I'd see a, 
you know, I, I would check my snares every day all winter long. Every time I saw a fresh set of tracks going from the field to the woods, loop another snare there. He might not be back tomorrow, but sometime in the next 30 days, somebody's going to look at that same spot and think the same thing that coyote thought and follow the same path. Yeah. And that was the most productive method for me to get coyotes as far as snares go. Hmm. Gotcha. Now, you weren't using the track dents, you weren't using Nothing. lures at this point. Totally blind sets. Blind sets into... Now, what about scent on the lure? I mean, it's a metal lure. It's not going to... Or, excuse me, it's a metal snare. Necessarily doesn't hold any scent, but, I mean, you spraying it down with anything, boiling them? At times, you know, I'd spray them down with scent block, let them hang outside in a tree along the edge of the woods for a month or two before season, hang them with rubber gloves. Make sure you're not getting any skin oils or salts from your skin on it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't throw them in a in a bucket that you had fish in two months ago. Just try to keep them as completely scent-free as you can. Right. But, yeah. Most of the times with the blind set, they're on the move, so they're not going to take this time to stop and sniff it. You'll be all right either way, but just for precaution. It's always kind of a sad moment when you walk up and wonder why he left. Yeah. At least you know at that point it wasn't scent. It wasn't the scent at that point. Something else spooked him. Yeah. Um, Out of curiosity, when when you're getting, uh, getting a coyote, get the pelt... What are you, uh, are you, are you, are you, um, flushing that or are you leaving it green? The ones I sell them. I typically, it depends on the, on the fur buyer. If you find a fur buyer, a Grunewald Shoe and Fur Company, they're out of the south of Michigan and they'll come up on a monthly basis and they make their routes through Michigan. Um, years ago, the last time I sold to them, they were out by Gun Lake. They pull up with a truck, looks like a snap on truck. Mm-hmm. They got the side overhead door and they come up and they'll buy it from the green. In fact, the pricing, uh, they've got fleshing machines. It's all automated. And they told me straight up that we'll buy coons, coyotes, same price whether it's flesh or, you know, flesh really? and stretch or green. You roll oh, yeah. it up, he told me to roll it green. up, freeze it, bring it to us in a trash bag, bought out enough where they can unroll it and make sure it's... Right, check right. it out, make sure it's not moldy. Yeah, exactly. Out of out of curiosity, what what were you dropping on a... Or what were you gaining by one of those pelts, by a coyote or a yoke pelt? Nah, it depends on the year. Some years could be five bucks, some years could be fifty-five, sixty. It depends on the quality, the color, and the market. The market plays the biggest role. Gotcha. Um, it's thing. almost more vo- more volatile than gas at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've seen muskrats go for a dollar thirty-five, and I've seen them go for twelve dollars. You know, there's it all depends on the year. Tough well, to set your budget by trapping. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um. I want to make sure I got this guy's name right because I was up uh, in Traverse City. Um, Friedrich, F R I D R I C H. Um, he had a shop up there, and we're going through these like, I mean, Traverse City is a great little city. It's gotten real yuppie, so there's like these little boutiques that are everywhere, and then all of a sudden, bam! Here's this fur shop, and I'm just like. Oh hell, we gotta go in here. <laughs> and he, I mean, he had beaver hat that I put it on for you know a couple seconds, and like I already started to sweat. Oh wow! Like the I mean the sound buffering too. Like the ears came down. The lady came and talked to me. I didn't even realize she was talking to me because I had the hat <laughs> on. It was just so heavy. But he had uh, coyote, he had beaver, and he had all sorts of stuff all over the place. Um, and he's still doing some buying. And he didn't tell me any of the prices or whatnot, but he was more on the end that he would buy them fleshed and stretched because then he was into the garment making. So he was into making the coats or yeah. the hats or the mittens. I mean, the mittens that he made out of beaver pelt was just incredible. 
So he was looking for ready to tan. He yeah. He was more on that. He would probably buy them from the from Grunewald. Yeah. From Grunewald that already had those done. Then. Yep. Um. Did you have you anything made with with your pelts, or you just pretty much send them and pretty much and send them. them? I've got several coyotes, a fox, a beaver, and a deer that are all set and slated to go down to a tannery. So I gotta get. I gotta make that run happen. <laughs> it's one of those things I keep saying. It's it's down towards the southeast side of the state, and uh, I'd like to get down there and bring that whole kit and caboodle down. But I'd, I'd like to have an, some sort of a display where I've got the tan hides from my canines all hanging off of a trap and kind of some sort of a setup. My daughter wanted her first deer ta- deer pelt tan for her to make a rug in her bedroom. Yeah. So they've got those kits that um, you, I mean, straight off Amazon or whatever. You can, if you're quick enough, you can brain tan yourself. Um, I've even heard there's a, a mixture you can use, like a DIY mix up. You use like an egg yolk. And something else, you mix it up. Oh no, kidding! And then that's what you use to actually, like, either mas- you massage that into the back of your already flushed um, hide there, because um, that's what my cousin did for one of the does that I had. She just had, a, I mean, really beautiful looking red fur on her, and I was like, I want, I want to keep this one. Yeah. So she ended up doing that, and she was like, it was a kit online she got from Amazon. So you, you can do it yourself, but. At the same time, the work that she had to put into it, the hours, it's like, if you got somebody that can do it automated, <laughs> yeah, yes. go do that. Send it. <laughs> but as far as, I mean, you've talked about coyote. Um, back to our beavers. Um, when you when you cut one of those out, I've heard them cut on the round. And it seems like you're not getting very much use out of that. Explain why we're cutting beaver on the round as opposed to just slitting the legs out i slit my legs out of mine only for the fact that i didn't know what it needed to be because i'm gonna have that stretched out my biggest one especially and my dad wants one and my neighbor who owns property wants one as well but i'm not sure the purpose for that actually unless it has to do with the consistency of the the layering of the fur versus different almost grain structure of the fur gotcha you you know like with your hat the fur is all laying in one direction yeah you know if you get into the legs maybe it throws colics and things like that different directions Gotcha. I mean, their use, it's just been so scraggly. Why use the yeah. four-quarter quarter when you can just make the round yeah. and that's where your money's being made? And maybe they do. They might still have a use for the remainder of it, too. I'm just not familiar with what they do. How that is. Yeah. You just bring it to them, they, yep. they cut them. Exactly. Um, but now, so you've got them skinned and you've got your, your carcass laying there. 50-pound beaver. That's a lot of meat right yeah. there. We're still talking giant rodent, by the way. <laughs> Have you you get a chance to pull the hamstrings off that, or not the hamstrings, the, the back, back straps off that thing? I did. I gave them the dusting. <laughs> I've heard since then, though. I've heard some people say they turn out really good. Yeah, gotcha. Have you gotten into those yet, Dustin? Or are those still in the no, freezer? They're still. They're they're, they're real, on the they're, they're on the list. They're waiting your grill. You're oh, the, gotcha. You're the, you're the master. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious. I know this is something I'm not. What's well, not had? Of, it's actually kind of a lighter red meat too. It's not as dark as I would have suspected. Yeah, I've heard a lot about even the leg quarter of doing that low and slow in a Dutch oven, and yeah. it's like beef roast where you can just pull it apart. Actually, it, it does kind of look like beef. It really does. It has a real beefy look to it. Yeah. The have you done anything with the tail yet? No, tails. I haven't. I no, frozen. <laughs> frozen. Yeah, gotcha. I have. I got a really good idea. 
There's, yeah, a, looks like, there's a lot of cartilage, it looks like, in there, right? There's a lot of cartilage, but that's, there's, there's a lot of fat store, stored in the tail. That's pretty much yeah. what it is. And my, my idea is, is that they use pork belly and they use bacon in pork and beans. Yeah. And it's it's just there to add flavor, to add a you know a meaty flavor, a smoky flavor to your baked beans. And then you got your you know the beans, and then you have your sauce made out of usually molasses or brown sugar, yada yada whatever. I've been floating around the idea that if I can get a hold of a tail to do beaver beans, <laughs> smoke the tail. That might be good. Take the you know take the scale off the outside, yeah. take the skin off. You're left with just that smoked fat. Ch- somehow, well, whether it's it's chop it up, and again, like you look at pork and beans, the pork isn't the mainstay in it. You no. know, you can always pick those pieces out, but to use that as my fatty, smoky element, and to make my own baked beans, beaver I, beans, beaver beans, beaver beans. <laughs> so, sounds cool. I need a tail, <laughs> and I want to try and make beaver beans. If there's somebody out there who's got a tail. And they need to get after a project. Let me know how Beaver Beans works out. There's a homework assignment for our for our <laughs> listeners. If I don't get a hold of one, but anyway, I think Beaver Beans is going to be where it's at. That would sound pretty good. I need it. Yeah, you can treat it just like bacon. I mean, because that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, you have your the bone right running right down the middle, and I'm sure there's some connective tissue that you're going to have to break down. But through the smoking process, <clears throat> that's what you're doing with it anyway. Yeah. Char off the skin. Sounds like a plan. Future event. Future. Future event. Future event. I'm going through my list pretty fast here, Dustin. You got anything else? I'm just taking notes, man. You're just taking notes. I'm just taking notes. <laughs> Silent. You are my note. <laughs> you are my note taker. Chief note taker. <laughs> They're really good. There's only like... Two red squigglies. I've spelled almost everything correctly. Excellent. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> um, of your, uh, we'll get back. We'll get into some equipment setup. Yeah. We'll start archery. What's your bow? And then tell us about your arrow setup. Uh, currently, right now, I'm running a 2009 Bowtech Captain, and I bought that in 2009, and I had no interest in shooting anything but that it's a, a bow is more than just a a tool it's an extension of yourself it's got to feel good it's got to fit good and when you find that one bow there's no reason to look anywhere else um, as far as my arrow setup i believe i'm running easton's i got me brainstorming i don't remember exactly which ones i'm running anymore <laughs> <laughs> i think i've only got one or two left i'm due for another set and i was curious to see what's out there in the market and yeah, it's been two years, and see what's out there, and if they've made advancements, and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. switch to something different yet. But you shooting heavy shafts, light no, shafts. No, I was shooting the, the Eastern Flatlines, is what I was shooting. They were more on the lighter end, but I don't think you need a real heavy shaft for kinetic energy purposes once you pass a certain threshold of feet per second. And I'm not shooting 50, 60 yards anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if I can keep them inside of 35 yards, I don't need the extra weight. Then I'm one pin zero to 30, and yeah, right there. Now, what's your what's your draw weight on that? Are you? I'm shooting between sixty eight and seventy pounds. Okay, so it's up there. Yeah. Are you maxing that bow out then? That is peaked out. Okay. Now you, just the way you were talking, you don't sound like a guy that, you know, each year, 
a new model comes out, you're eager no. to get that new model. <laughs> I, I've got a couple of real close friends that do that. It's a new bow every two years. Mm-hmm. But those are great friends to have around. They are. Those are the ones I want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, what is it? Uh, Elite has one they came out with. Um, a buddy of mine that does that. He bought an Elite, I believe, two years ago. And his previous bow was another Bowtech captain that my wife has now. But uh, Elite's got one. It's only like five or six pounds at full draw. I don't know if you've seen the video for that on YouTube. Really? The guy takes a 70-pound draw bow on the on the bow scale, yeah. brings it down, breaks it over its back. You can see the scale hit 68 yeah. or 70 pounds. And once it hits its, its draw weight or let off point, he releases the bow. And the scale shows 5.62 pounds on the scale, and that bow does not come up. Oh, my goodness. And he said, he, he's still trying to get me to shoot that bow because he wants to change my mind that I need a new bow. Oh, yeah. yeah. But he owns it now, so a couple years down the road, it, I'll yeah, get it, it'll be yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's about 25% of the price of new. It's amazing how they've figured out that cam configuration that, yeah, you can pull it, and yeah, you're just holding five pounds. That probably feels like nothing yeah. back there. I mean, that's the weight of the bow. Um, I'm not shooting top of the line my my quest does awesome but like just like you said it's it, it just works for me yeah it's it, like it's an extension of my arm i'm not guessing where any of the points are on it it's it's not trying to jump me it's exactly. giving me the time to to work with it so yeah it's you know i'll, I'll wait for one of my friends to want to drop off one of their top of lines and then exactly. then i'll start looking at it um so you're shooting lighter shaft said flat lines yep. what are you using for uh for a broadhead I'm going on probably, what, 10 years now with a Rage 2 blade, 100 grain. I've never had a failure. I've never had an issue. Some people say otherwise, but a bad shot's a bad shot. I don't care what broadhead you have on the end of your arrow. It's bad shot. You put it in the boiler room with a good broadhead, it's going down. Gotcha. This is a testament because I think four or five... Four out of five of my friends, they're also friends with you, they all shoot the Rage 2 blade. Do they? <laughs> yeah. It's, well, what's John doing this year? <laughs> I'm going to do what John's is he, doing. Is he still shooting the Rage 2 blade? Okay, I'm going uh, to keep shooting the Rage 2 blade. <laughs> well, there was a lot of speculation about penetration with those two, mm-hmm. you know, six, eight years ago. My wife's always shot 58 to 60 pounds. She shoots a 60-pound bow, peaked out, and it falls somewhere right in there. And they came out with the inch and a half low ke kinetic energy broadheads for rage several years ago she shot those killed deer with them got complete pass-throughs one day she had thrown one of my two inch broadheads on there and it punched right through a deer so once again you don't need the speed with a good shot placement proper distance good shot angle mm-hmm. they'll do the trick i think my next bow is actually i'll probably back down to a 60 pound i don't think there's any with the cam technology these days and the speed you can output those arrows at there's no reason to try you to pull back anymore than 60 pounds. Yeah. yeah. At that point, you know, why stress yourself out? It's already a stressful situation that you yeah. put yourself in. Why do you need Why do you need to be at 70? I mean, now they're making limbs for 80 pounds. Granted, these are all being used out west and whatnot. But at the same time, the, with the setups that you have, 25, 30 yards, you don't, you don't yeah. need that much power at that point. Yeah, we're shooting Michigan Woods. Exactly. 30 yards is a long ways through the woods. It is a very long ways. It might not look so much out west in the plains, but in a Michigan dense woods, 30 yards is a long ways, and a 60-pound bow will be more than enough. Mm-hmm. 
I do feel bad because now I'm going against what what you were just talking about. I'm going heavy. <laughs> I, my grip, my arrows at 630 grades, <laughs> and I got 300 up front with a two blade single bevel. <laughs> it's it looks deadly. It would be. I'm, but at the same time, speed's not my my issue. Yeah. Well, Everything's in thing. 20, 30 you yards. You don't want a soul light. You lose consistency either. Yeah. You start getting flyers, or on a windy day, it's going to create drift. Or if there's a leaf in your way. I mean, throw a ping pong ball at you and then throw a golf ball. Yeah, the golf ball's going to hurt. <laughs> exactly. Ping pong ball's not even going to get to you. Yep. And just as you were saying, you know, a, a good shot's a good shot. You put in the boiler room, things going to be down. What I want is I make a good shot, but the wild animal is a wild animal. And it turns, spins, drops, does something. And I get end up with a shoulder blade. I I don't want to track for three miles and end up mm-hmm. with nothing. You know, exactly. th- at that point, you know, you and your um, your daughter. Luckily, she was using a, a gun at that point, and you ended up with a prize at the end. But I just don't want to end up with nothing at the end of that trail, but a fizzled out, yeah, to nothing. And so, if that shoulder blade gets in, I don't want to worry about that shoulder blade. I don't want to just punch right through it. So my sacrifice is distance. Yeah, but outside of thirty yards, isn't going to be what I want to do. I mean, 40 is my ethical range. Yeah. As far as accuracy and as far as speed, anything past that 41, it's not even yeah. within my world. There's too I much reaction time difference there yeah. for them to be able to react, drop or spin like you're saying. So it's got to be inside of that 40. And then again, every deer I've taken has been like 25 or 30 yards is my absolute longest shot so far now, that I've f- taken. Do you find the 18 yards is the magic number? Right around that 18, 15 to 18, 20, like yeah. 90% of my deer have been right there. I used to be at 5. <laughs> I, was at, I was stuck at 5 for a long time. Um, yeah, That's almost more difficult than I would say it is. the 40-yard. They, yes. they just like to get real close to me. I was like, I get, here we go again. But you put that, you because like instinctively a, you're like, I'm going to put that 20 pin, yeah. but it's not the 20 pin. It's going to be your 30 or your 40 pin. You gotta, but now which one yeah. is it? Bottom of the brisket. It was either you yep, or your dad. It was dad. bottom of the brisket. Because I messed one up, and then, I don't know, maybe it was that. subconsciously me trying to redeem myself, but because I had one at five yards, I blew. And then I, I went on a revenge tour of the five yards. <laughs> <laughs> so you said bottom of the brisket. What, yep. what are you referring to? When the deer is that close to you, you want to put your pin right at the very bottom of their brisket. Your Which pin? Your top pin. Your closest range pin. If you're shooting a 10-yard pin, put your 10-yard pin at the bottom of their brisket. Because at that point, they're so close. You you're, you look at your line of sight. Your shaft and your sights are three to four inches. Your sights are three to four inches higher. Correct. Than your shaft. And what that's going to do is, it, it's hard to explain. It's almost like shooting carp underwater. Yeah. It's like the refraction. It, it, it's a mental way of just making up for that shooting high at that closer range. Another pro tip from John Smith is yeah. put your top pin on the bottom of their brisket it when they die. are within five yards. Yeah. They'll die. They'll die. <laughs> I love it. Because that is, it's one of those yeah. you look at it like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get this to go down there? Yeah. You need to do it. it, it it's easy to remember and do and not mess up, too. It's just like. Yeah, if you start thinking about heights and distances, yeah. and logic doesn't work as far as he's that close, let's shoot underneath him. So if you yeah. just say top pin under the brisket. Sink that into your nugget, and you're good to go. I'm going to put that, yeah, it's going on an index card in my pocket. (laughs) What? I don't think that's going to help out. See, I I shoot single pin. 
with my archery for deer. Mm-hmm. And I've always, it's kind of been a mental game to me. If it's close, I'm going to shoot at the heart. It's a smaller target, so logically, I'm going to shoot a smaller target up close. Now, if you look at where the heart's at, and you shoot up close, now you see a 35-yard shot, I'm going to shoot the center of the lungs. Now your target's much bigger, and center of that target's higher. So naturally, you're going to raise your point of impact up. Without even thinking you're going to aim three inches higher, all you did is change targets. Yeah. And it puts the arrow where it needs to be. I like it. That's a great mindset. It works. Perfect. I don't know if I'm going to go to it, but <laughs> I'm glad that you can, you can do that. Now, what do you set your single pin at? Is that My single pin's typically between 20 and 25 yards. 20 and 25 yards. Okay. Yeah. That way, I'm, it's still punched in the top of a 50-cent piece at 10 yards if I'm aiming at the center, but then at 35 yards, I'm only an inch or two low. Which gotcha. would, You've got enough speed that, I mean, if, to say you had a several pins set up, they would be tight enough that... Yeah. You know, you're not too far off. You shoot at 20, 30 is only going to be a couple inches away. Yeah. Or even one to two inches away. Yeah. So now setting that, instead of putting it directly on the heart, you're putting it just on top of the heart. Yep. Which would be center of your lungs. There you go. Because I don't want to shoot at a tiny target at 30 yards. No. (laughs) No. That's good. That's good mental math right there. (laughs) All right. We are a cooking podcast, and John, you've had years and years with... um, with wild game, yeah. Uh, other than just fry, I'm gonna your first. We do a uh, two dish breakdown, and I'm gonna have you break down two dishes that you would make either from food you'd forage from or wild game. And our first one is gonna be with our morels. Uh, there's been a lot of ways that people just fry them up, throw them on steak. Do you have another dish you make with them? Or my is that favorite, your go-to, is kind of an alteration of my childhood favorite. Um, obviously you want to cut them in half, clean them out, soak them in salt water, make sure any of the bugs, grubs, everything exits. And I've, are you guys familiar with the Skeeter's batter? I'm not. No. He is, you can buy it at Bob's Gun Tackle. He's, I believe he grew up in Delton. He's down in Litchfield now. But it's called Skeeter's Batter It Up. So he's a local guy. He's a local guy. He makes his own batter. He's got several variations of it. And he has a light Cajun. This is just a knockout. So I, I wash him. Batter them up in Skeeter's Light Cajun, fry them in butter, and that's spot on. Now, is that a wet batter at that point, or you're nope, just dry? It, it's dry. It's, it's very similar to Drake's. It's a finer. It's not like your Andes where you got the more coarse, high sodium. Yeah. This is more of a lower sodium, light flavor, which is really good. I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to sodium, so if I can eat a pile of mushrooms and not break out of sweat, I'm gold, man. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah, just a quick fry. You know, yep, fry the butter until it's golden brown, a little crunchy on the outside, still a little soft on the inside, and of course, I'm trying to appeal to an 8- and 11-year-old daughter, too. That's true. So if I can make them eat it and make them want to hunt for more of them, that's more eyes on the ground. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's a great dish one. Dish two. Um, I'm going to kind of I'm gonna open it up to venison on yes. this one on you. It's date night specific. So the girls are off to grandma and grandpa's. The dog is nowhere to be found. You've already dropped the dog off. It's just you and the missus, and you want the date night to go just right. And it's your job to cook. What are you cooking? Anything that doesn't have a bone in it. She does not like eating anything around a bone. <laughs> no bone. So huh? it'd be it'd be tenderloins or backstraps. Um, that'd be my go-to. Um, just in the last year, I really got into frying steaks. And believe it or not, I use the same batter I do on my mushrooms. It's kind of like my Franks of the kitchen. I put there that you shit on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like back, a countryfied style. 
It's similar to that, yeah. Um, I would fry it on one side until you start to see blood peek through the top. Mm-hmm. Flip it over, give it another minute and a half to two minutes, and get it out of the pan. Um, you want it pink in the middle. You don't want venison overcooked. Right. Um, it falls apart. I mean, you can bite it, and it falls apart in your mouth. And it's good. Awesome. What are you serving with it? Oh, typically anything from green beans to broccoli to something green. There White you go. White flakes or vegetables. So <laughs> got to keep her happy on that end. There you go. If I was if it was my end, I think we'd probably have potatoes and gravy. But as you say, you need you need some spuds in there. Yeah. Well, John, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming and yeah. uh, joining us. And it's just great to get your input. I I know both Dustin and I have wanted you to be on the show for quite a while. We appreciate uh, your expertise. I appreciate the invite and being here with you guys. All right. Well, hey, cheers. And uh, keep your eye sharp.